0: you're listening to perspectives in parryville today my guest is james watt a palliative care nurse in this episode we find out about james's early life and upbringing in new zealand and his study and training as a nurse James shares insights into topics that are hard to talk about, for example, those universal experiences such as death, dying and grief. James is particularly interested in how communication might be improved in healthcare, especially in palliative care, that is, supporting people who have a life-limiting illness. We chat about how James develops communication skills of his healthcare colleagues and the micro skills in this area naming an emotion, using the seemingly simple phrase, tell me more, validating and listening as a way to acknowledge the patient, summarising and reflecting back. We also discuss the central role of empathy, a skill that can be developed and the use of non-verbal communication and words that demonstrate that empathy and make it explicit. James reflects on his clinical and staff training experiences during COVID and his thoughts on trauma, anger, fear, anxiety, isolation and collective grief in a post-pandemic world We explore how James uses learning design skills to further expand and enhance his training and development techniques within healthcare, helping staff recognise and understand the complexities of grief. James emphasises how all people can use these valuable communication skills in their everyday lives. Here's my conversation with James Watt. So very nice to see you again James. Thank you Mark, nice to see you. Thank you for um you know wanting to participate. We um we're going to find out all well, I would like to find out a little bit more about where you've come from what you know what what have you studied maybe in the past or some of your earlier experiences that have led us to this moment that we're
1: mm. in at the mo- right now. Mm. Well, um if I rewind the clock um Thinking back to uh, where things started for me, I grew up in New Zealand and uh, I uh, moved to Melbourne in the year 2000. So uh, all my um, early years were in New Zealand and I was the youngest of a large family, youngest of six children. And uh, being the youngest, (laughs) were you? Didn't know that. (laughs) Uh, Being the youngest, I probably was a little bit spoiled. Uh, And uh, my mum was a stay-at-home mum and did an amazing job raising six children and my dad was actually a professional photographer and he started a portrait studio in the 50s in a small city in New Zealand and then moved into retail photography and, and that grew into a family business that many of us worked in over the years, uh, which um, was uh, an amazing experience to be immersed in uh, all things photographic which i probably took for granted what were you doing and how old were you Mm. so uh, i wasn't allowed to be paid to work in the shop until i turned 15 so a lot of the early years were just kind of mucking around kind of playing with stuff out the back Uh, but once i was 15 i came out to the front of the shop and learned how to sell camera equipment and I, I kind of stuck with the low, low end stuff, the easier stuff um, while I was still learning. Um, some of the seasoned salespeople sold the, you know, the fancy cameras. Do you uh, mean like point and shoot type cameras? Yeah. 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 Just those kind of automatic ones that you didn't have to adjust too many things on. Uh, we did a lot of photo processing as well. And uh, um, not on site. Um, we were very against that whole one hour processing movement, which um, we felt was resulted in pretty poor quality print. So, can uh, I just ask for our, y-
0: sorry to interrupt you, but for our younger audience members, what does that even mean? What is this <laughs> well, um, one hour?
1: <laughs> back in the day of film processing, uh, normally when you sent your Um, film away to be processed, it would take at least a few days, um, sometimes a week, or if it was an unusual process, maybe even a few weeks. Uh, So um, I think in the 80s, this one-hour processing thing came in and uh, these shops had these kind of big machines that would process the film on site and you could pick your photos up an hour later, which, you know, I remember... Being so excited waiting for those films to come back it was um hard to contain yourself waiting to see what your images were going to look like so uh yeah that was um, um much of my childhood was uh in that kind of environment and um then uh i enjoyed my schooling years i was a pretty um, motivated student and had some great teachers uh and then um, in 1985, um, my dad suddenly died, which was uh, pretty shocking and unexpected and um, obviously had a huge impact on all of us as a family. And uh, being a well-known business person in our community, um, uh, it kind of affected a lot of people. So we um, continued to run that business as a family and for about five more years and then we sold it. And uh, my brother continued working in it, but it was owned by someone else and traded under its current under that name for seventy years until it closed a few years ago. Mark, I wanted to mention this book that I read many years ago. A psychologist I was seeing at the time uh, mentioned it to me as something that I might find useful, and it's called *The Loss That Is Forever*. The Lifelong Impact of the Early Death of a Mother or Father. And it's written by Maxine Harris. It's uh, quite an old book. I'm not sure what year it was published, but I found that so helpful. Having lost my dad when I was 13, uh, that really changes your outlook on the world. And suddenly death that seems to be something, um, you know, you're untouched by becomes a very normal expected thing that could be just around the corner. So uh, I think, you know, that really made sense to me. And I think that uh, helped me work in the area of palliative care for so long, and uh, really normalise the whole experience of death. Uh, It's not uncommon. And people I meet, who get to a very old age that are quite shocked and surprised when they find out they're coming to the end of their life and it's not something they may have thought much about i've been thinking about it probably every day of my whole life uh, and um, this book really helped me understand why when i um it was time to leave school i wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I was interested in a whole lot of things. I was really interested in food and cooking and I thought I might want to be a chef. So uh, my school organised some work experience in a restaurant for a night and I hated it. And I quickly crossed that one off my list. Why did you hate it? Well, I had that romantic notion of, um, you know, it's all about presenting the final product. But then I realised there's hours of peeling you know thousands of potatoes and making a thousand carrot sticks and so on and I I couldn't really be bothered with all that repetitive stuff so uh yeah I moved away from that idea and and then the kind of angst of adolescence kicked in and I became quite interested in psychology and uh went off and did an arts degree and majoring in psychology and uh did a whole lot of other kind of social science subjects, not quite sure where I was heading, and then got towards the end of that and then thought I wanted to study nursing. And at that time, a new course had just been launched, a graduate entry program where you could study nursing in two years. So this is in the early 90s. Uh, that kind of university system was Uh, quite different then. Nowadays, it's pretty common to do an undergrad degree and then uh, specialise in in something else. But back then, um, doing a two-year course in nursing was unheard of, and lots of people were like, how can you become a nurse in two years? It's a three-year course. They couldn't quite get their head around that. So, uh, and nursing's got an interesting kind of history with education Uh, you know, starting off as hospital-based training and then morphing into um, polytechnic-based training and then into universities and degrees. And um, each time it's kind of evolved, there's been a whole lot of resistance and uh, people with very strong opinions about that. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I kind of was in that changeover period of, doing a diploma in nursing and then the degrees were coming out and everyone wanted a degree in nursing but uh, uh, at the end of the day um, um, the um, the most important thing as well as the theoretical background it was really important to have that hands-on practical experience. So uh, yeah that was um, that was kind of my experience of Getting into nursing. What happened after that? I'm trying to remember. What year? What era are we up to hmm. now? Yeah, we're um, we're in the early nineties. Uh, I um, my first job when I graduated from my course was in mental health, and uh, I um, really enjoyed that. Made some lifelong friends in Can the I mental just health ask- area.
0: A question. When you do nursing, do you specialise into something like mental health or you just, you basically just cover everything and then it's wherever you're placed? Yeah.
1: In New Zealand at that time, you came out with what was called a comprehensive qualification. So you could go into any area. That's not the case in every country. And, uh, It's generally accepted now that you will do some further training once you graduate. So uh, most nurses nowadays do what's called a graduate year. So you might graduate and then go into mental health and do your graduate year in mental health and some further study. So, yeah, I kind of could work anywhere and uh, uh, I was really interested in travelling as well and that was one of the appeals of nursing It was meant to be a great qualification to travel with. I'd actually considered teaching when I was younger. And uh, I was under this impression that uh, to be a primary teacher, you had to be great at music and be able to play a musical instrument because all my primary teachers played musical instruments uh, and I wasn't very musical. So I disregarded that option. Um, But I did come from a family of teachers. Uh, My oldest brother was an academic. My next sister was a high school teacher and then the next sister was a primary school teacher. So I um, did get exposed to a bit of uh, the teaching world. And um, when I was little, I thought it was really cool that my... Big sister was um, at teachers' college, and she used to kind of practice on me and come home and get me to do things. And I'd go back to school, kind of feeling a bit special because I knew what was going on behind the scenes with the teachers. Oh, and yes, and in- inside <laughs>
0: scoop—the behind the scenes of teaching. Yes, what yeah, what sort of things yeah. can you share with us? Like, you know, what did you uh, what did you learn about
1: learning? Oh, and yeah, good question. What did I learn about learning? Um, Way well, there back was a lot little- A lot of preparation that went into it for teachers. Um, You know, as a child, they just turn up with all these kind of bells and whistles and colourful things. And uh, but a lot of thought had gone into it, and a lot of often creativity back then. Um, There were no computers to generate things. Uh, Everything had to be done by hand. And uh, I remember um, everything was very kind of chunked and. Kind of uh, broken into gradual steps, so things always seem to start off fairly really easy and then become more complex. Um, that was one of my memories.
0: Hmm. Mm. So I'm sure, I'm sure your teachers, when you revealed, were they impressed or were they kind of thinking,
1: oh, "Well, how, how do you know all this?" Or <laughs> I can't remember. Um, I honestly can't remember, but I do. My mum tells me the story when I was at kinder. Um, I was the only child in the group that knew the colour silver. The teacher must have been asking us about colours and somehow I knew what the colour silver was. Uh, but, yeah, other than that, I don't remember what the teachers thought of that.
0: So then I'm, did you, I'm assuming that you started reflecting, or no, not reflecting, like um, incorporating maybe, learning and teaching into your role as mm. mental health nurse
1: or mm. can they tell us not what- so much in the early years of my career the my interest in education came a bit later as i i guess became more confident in my own self and my own knowledge and skills so uh, i think as a new graduate you're very focused on um becoming you know proficient at your job uh
0: so what was so, it like your mm, job you know, mm. during during when you first graduated and did you sort of just get on with things? Did you travel? Yeah.
1: So the travel came um, a few years later. So I, I did a couple of years in mental health and then I went overseas to the UK and spent a couple of years over there and got some more experience and, and got kind of scratched the travel itch bug. Uh, and then came back to New Zealand and kind of moved around in a few different roles and got into community nursing and and, uh, and then when I moved to Australia in 2000, my first job that I took here was with the Royal District Nursing Service and uh, and that's when I um, actually got right into palliative care nursing which we um, can talk about in a minute but um, I think I actually had a number of kind of earlier experiences that I think got me quite interested in palliative care so I uh, Obviously, the loss of my own dad made me very aware of, uh, you know, what what losing a loved one is like, and uh, particularly from a, a young person's perspective. Um, but I also um, lost a number of family members. Uh, my um, my uh, I was involved in caring for a grandmother at home who died at home, and that was a, a pretty unique, special experience. And... Um, I remember having a, a primary school teacher whose father died and she was incredible. She sat in front of our class and cried and she she told us in very age-appropriate language what that was like for her and explained about the process of dying to, like, I suppose we were about 11 or 12. Uh, so I had, um, I had some very early positive kind of experiences of death and dying which uh, kind of supported my interest and uh, got me um, interested in palliative care.
0: Can I just ask a question? This is more for the audience, but
1: Mm. how do do you or how does one define palliative care? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a well-understood term and it's a confusing term. Uh, Essentially, Palliative care is an approach to care that's focused on managing symptoms and improving quality of life for people that have a life-limiting illness. Uh, And there's no set kind of life expectancy that someone needs to have to receive palliative care, but uh, generally it needs to be a condition that can't be cured um, and that they're likely to die from. So... Uh, the focus of care moves away from some of those treatments that are, are aimed at cure, and they, we, we spend our time and energy on helping them live well for however long that may be and making sure symptoms are well managed and families receive practical and emotional support that they need. So I realised um, once I started working in palliative care full-time, This was an area I really wanted to stay in and it really aligned with a lot of my values and a lot of the reasons why I'd gone into healthcare. Uh, I really wanted to uh, um, support people um, that needed assistance and um, make life easier for them and on their terms and palliative care is very much about uh, what the person wants not what the health system thinks they need so it's very patient directed and person-centered and i really liked that and it was really attractive to me so uh, this was an area I, i stayed in for many years
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So this sort of territory with death and dying and grief and, you know, it's it's not for the faint-hearted or, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, not everyone's up for a conversation about this. And I could understand healthcare workers, sure, that they kind of, occupy that territory. They're a lot more familiar and everyday occurrence, you know, that comes with that territory. So I guess my question is, how do you approach communication in that territory for, I guess, for nurses maybe that specialize in palliative care, but also for all nurses? Like what sort of, what did you do? Like how do you
1: strategize or, you know, what sort of language do you use, or like, yeah, this is um such an interesting area, and I became interested in supporting my colleagues in their endeavours to be effective communicators in the healthcare setting. It's this kind of interest I had, uh, I think started when I did my master's in palliative care nursing, and uh, I did a minor thesis in uh, what we call family meetings. So it's quite common in hospitals for lots of family members to be very concerned about their loved one and that the patient may want uh, their family to be involved and hear all the same information that they're hearing. And so I did a study in the hospital that I was working in at the time where I I used some recently published clinical practice guidelines on running family meetings, and I tested them in an acute hospital setting. So I trained um, a handful of health staff in how to, I guess, run a family meeting, so how to... Um, prepare a meeting so that uh, all the right people are invited. How to help everyone feel included? How to make sure that information is going to be accessible? So, do we need to have an interpreter there, for example, or do we need some other parts of the healthcare team that are really important in this person's care? And how do we how do we get the the patient? and family members agenda up and front and centre because one of the things hospitals aren't very good at doing is health staff we we run around with our own kind of list to-do list and our own agenda and you know we need we need to make sure the patient understands xyz and we can tick tick our boxes and then we're done for the day but actually the the patient and family might have a different agenda and a whole lot of other questions we're not aware of so it's really important that we recognise um, that someone, someone receiving care is going to have a whole lot of stuff that they need to know, and that's maybe more important to them than what we think is important. So, part of uh, training staff to run family meetings was, you know, making sure they, they draw out this agenda right at the beginning of the meeting. And it's not just in a family meeting situation, this is, you know, one-on-one as well. So uh but when might... when you use that sorry to mm. interrupt but when you mm. use that word agenda
0: like mm. I know agenda from a, like a meeting agenda but mm. in this sort of highly personal sort of territory is it can you what's what do you mean by the agenda yeah.
1: of the family yeah so uh sometimes um people might want to devote a significant amount of the conversation to potential treatments someone else might want to focus on how do we get how do we support this person at home and what kind of help we get someone else might want to talk about how do i tell my children that i'm not going to be around next year and who can support me with that so it's drawing out you know what's important to this person if it's if we're focusing on quality of life everyone's going to be different where do people want to be? What do they need? Who do they want to be around them? Uh, what does their care look like? And how can we make that happen?
0: I can already see there's there's lots of layers to this territory and it's kind of like lots of, uh, what would you call them, like kind of little little areas that require focused attention and compassion and the rest of it, but then you still would have uh, healthcare staff that are, they've got their job to do so how do they how what sort of strategies do you explore with them i guess there's another layer of teaching stuff yeah, as well yeah
1: so uh this is where we get into perhaps some of the micro skills around communication and uh that's something i like I, the sound <laughs> of that well, micro <laughs> skills <laughs> yes i don't mean to be flippant but I'm that's something uh yeah i i spend time in the hospital um, teaching people. So uh, maybe moving on from some of this family meeting stuff, um, uh, some of the other, I can talk about some of the other communication training that I do more generally. A lot of that is focused around equipping people um, to use what I call micro skills. Um, I didn't make that term up, it's No, out no there. I don't mean to, I
0: have all respect for micro skills, it's just that word micro has yeah. become very fashionable the last sort of 20 years, yes, micro absolutely. credentials, micro skills, micro learning, so yes. what are some of these micro skills?
1: Yeah, so uh, it might be things, well, it might be, it is things like, um, how do we normalise Someone's emotions. So often, people are going to be anxious or sad, and it's important to acknowledge how they're feeling and validate and normalize that, because people can feel like, "Am I the only one that's, you know, responding in this way? Am I the only one that feels overwhelmed in this hospital environment?" What, what's
0: so, the What's the opposite of if it is an opposite? Hmm. What's What happens
1: if it's not there? Or like, yeah, so <laughs> people people um, feel different. They feel not heard and they feel isolated. So, you know, number one, people need to feel heard and recognised and seen and acknowledged. Um, And a big part of that is on an emotional level, you see them in front of you, but you need to actually make a deliberate effort to reach out and say, you know, I can see that this is really difficult for you. I can see um, uh, that. Maybe you're struggling, or you're you're confronted by this. It is really difficult, and that's okay. So on a on a training, uh, uh, what do you call it? T tra-
0: training and development level. Mm-hmm. Do you have like write down to like little suggested scripts or something like that? Like, what are some phrases yeah. that? Yeah, sometimes
1: might- sometimes we we do go down to that level because uh, it can just be helpful for people to have a couple of phrases in their pocket. Uh, but I, I also let people or get people to kind of adjust them to what feels comfortable for them, and obviously the situation and the person they're talking to. But you know, a tip, a common phrase I might get people to use is "Tell me more." This is a really helpful one. I want health staff to be listening more than they're talking. If they're doing eighty percent of the talking and twenty percent of the listening. Uh, I feel like something's probably not going very well um, because we can help people more if we understand them more so and that's through listening and getting getting their story. so simply saying, Can you tell me more about what that's like or just tell me more?' and then shutting your mouth and listening is can be really effective. Another phrase might be uh, I call it the I wish statement um, in palliative care. Often there is, uh, there's no kind of magic answer. There's no cure for the illness. Um, this person is uh, sadly going to die and we can't change that outcome, no matter how hard we try. So sometimes when, uh, Um, a health worker's lost for words, acknowledging how much they wish it could be a better or different outcome is a good thing to do. So I might say I really wish the news was better, I really wish there was more I could do, or I really wish um, this treatment had worked. Again, can be a good acknowledgement of how difficult the situation is but as a health worker, you, um, it, it kind of lifts some of the burden of having to feel like you've got the answers. Um, nurses and doctors, they love to kind of solve problems and they love to have an answer for everything and a solution. And it's not always, um, it's not always there and it doesn't have to be. So uh, sometimes the solution is just acknowledging and validating and listening.
0: Can you tell me more? Can you tell
1: me more? (laughs) Of course, (laughs) Mark. I've written that down. I'm going to use that one. Uh, So uh, maybe some of the other micro skills um, that we use are summarising. Sometimes a patient might give us a big, long spiel about all their concerns and then as the listener, you're a bit overwhelmed, like, oh, gosh, I've got all this information and I don't know where to go. And so just to merely summarise it and reflect it back is really helpful because it checks that you're accurate in your understanding and then you can prioritise. Maybe you've only got 10 minutes left to spend with that person and you can say, look, I can hear there's a lot going on. You mentioned ABCD, ABCD. Uh, We've only got 10 minutes today. Which of these things is the most important that we address first? So um, the summary is really helpful. Um, The other big part of this is empathy. And uh, I spend a lot of time in uh, my healthcare training helping people learn to be more empathic. And uh, a lot of people... um, are quite gifted in this area. They, for whatever reason, they come through life with this kind of natural warmth and empathy and other people have to work a bit more at it. And it's um, completely doable if if you don't feel like you're naturally a very empathic person. Um, We can definitely...
0: Uh, I have a question. Yeah. And I think I already know the answer, but yeah. do you believe that or can empathy skills be
1: taught? Absolutely. Yeah, they can. And I, that's what I do. So, uh, and a lot of people are quite empathic in their head. They may um, uh, on a cognitive level and an emotional level, be um, very with the person and concerned and even upset and maybe distressed themselves about what they're hearing and the, the suffering that someone's going through and the challenges. But uh, they don't make that explicit. They don't uh, utilize the non-verbals and the words that convey that empathy. So, um, for example, there was a study done um, with some doctors uh, that had consultations with patients. And um, afterwards the patients and doctors were interviewed about their experience and they, uh, For for the patients who said the doctors weren't very empathic, the doctors were saying, oh, gosh, you know, I felt so bad for her. And and they were saying all the things that suggested they were very concerned, but they just weren't making their empathy explicit. Um, So there's some micro skills I teach that help people make that empathy more explicit, and there's an acronym that I use called NURSE, And each um, letter stands for a microphone. I love
0: acronyms. I'm going to
1: write down whatever you're about to
0: tell me. I'm going
1: to write it down. What, What are the letters first? Hopefully I can remember it. Mark, oh, well, that's the nature of acronyms. I know this is a problem, memory. and if they're too long, you forget them. And there are some really long ones in healthcare. Well, what's, um, the what's the word? What first? So, nurse. N U R S
0: E. N U R S E. And I've written that down vertically
1: on my yep, page. Great. Now, literally a couple of days ago, I was talking to some junior doctors, the doctors that are a couple of years into their training, and I was uh working with another doctor we were doing some role plays and i started to talk about empathy and i pulled out the nurse acronym and um, i started to walk them through it and i forgot some of the letters which is really embarrassing um but that's okay because as long as you remember a couple you're you're doing well so n is for naming so that was one of the micro skills i mentioned before so naming an emotion so what are you seeing what what emotion do you think this person's feeling uh, acknowledge it and validate it and name it. Now, you might get it wrong and that's okay too because someone will correct you if you say you look really sad, Mark, and you say, actually, I'm bloody angry, that's okay because I need to know if you're angry because we can then talk about that. So yeah, The
0: nature of emotions, I guess it's that kind of um, being able to articulate the the nuance of an emotion because sometimes it's there's ambiguity there you know people might misinterpret or they might think you're very grumpy but really you are sad or a whole range of different things but I guess um yeah I think that naming I mean how are patients with that like when when the nurse is engaging with the patients are they uh, confronted by that or do they just sort of roll with it and they're able to
1: articulate or Mm -hmm. uh look some feel more comfortable practising that than others, um, and this is why, you know, I do training and I get people to practise it, and they might need to practise it several times before they start to feel a bit more comfortable with it. So it's um, this is, you know, also about pushing people a bit outside their comfort zone when they're learning. Um, I, I say to people, I don't I don't want you doing all the things you usually do. Um, I want you to try something new and it's going to feel uncomfortable, but just bear with it. Yep. So can you tell me more about the letter U? That stands for understanding. So it's important we convey an effort, the effort that we're making to try and understand a person's problem or situation. So... In order, I might say to you, Mark, in order for me to try and help a bit more and understand this better, can you tell me more? Or I really want to understand what's going on here. I know this has not gone well today. Um, help me understand what we need to do better next time. Hmm. So that deliberate kind of effort to understand someone. Yep. And what about R? Our- uh, respect. So you uh, can convey respect through um, obviously being polite and professional and giving of your time and attention, not being distracted. But, uh, you know, it's really because we've become so electronic in healthcare nowadays with, you know, computers, uh, it can appear disrespectful when a a health worker is kind of not – you know, looking at you or they're so busy on their computer. So you might actually need to put the computer aside and actually turn to someone, but you might acknowledge how hard someone's tried um, to address an issue or to follow a a treatment regime, or you might say, look, I can see how hard um, you've been trying to get to these appointments, but I know, you know, it's been too much. And so whatever. So, Respect. Uh, I've got two left. Yes. Support. So uh, how, um, I guess, making a statement that conveys how you can support someone. So an example might be, um, we really want to support you through this. What, What could we do? Um, what's the most what could we do that's helpful for you at the moment, or how, how can we best support you at the moment to get through this? So that's support, and then E, uh, E. See now I'm forgetting, Mark. Uh, I think <laughs> it might be. Um, is it explain? Don't you have a little a little card? Do nurses have a little yeah, laminated I've- card? They Look, I do. Them. I've got this whole bag of tricks here. Right. And uh, it'll be in here. I've got a few guesses, but I shall withhold my guesses. Uh, here we are. Explore. Okay. Explore. I was going to say explain, and I thought that's not right because um, people, nurses and doctors, spend too much time explaining things. <laughs> I'm exploring. So this is where we might come back to that micro skill of tell me more. Uh, So could you say more about what you mean when you say that? Or uh, can you tell me a bit more about the symptom or this pain? Yeah, so that is nurse. And the great thing about uh, these micro skills is people can use them in their everyday lives. They uh, don't have to be confined to health workers. We're all going through stuff in our own lives. We're all supporting loved ones. Uh, you know when you're having that conversation when you're pouring your heart out to someone and uh, you get to the end of it and it's like they may not acknowledge how you're feeling or you know the distress you're in and then they move on to some other conversation Um, it's really important every day in our lives that we all draw upon some of these skills
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I'm thinking about the idea of I like the idea of this everyday incorporating empathy and compassion and um, emotions and understanding into our everyday life, and then I'm reflecting on I guess the the past four years basically of the global pandemic and COVID and how disruptive that was. And we're still arguably in that in a way, but I mean, you know, all the grief and all the kind of stress and the disruption to everyday life. And so what can you tell, I'm going to refer to my notes. Can you tell me more about (laughs) this, I guess, that the phrase collective grief, if that's a kind of thing, or, you know, what maybe just, what, what does it mean for you in, as a healthcare practitioner in your, what, what jobs do you have in front of you in the aftermath of COVID in terms of, you know, better supporting people, the community?
1: COVID, wow. <laughs> Where do we begin? Uh, it's been quite a game changer and I know uh, everyone's been impacted by the pandemic in one way or another, no one's been left unaffected. And uh, I feel like we're all just a little bit different. Uh, We've all learned a lot. Uh, We've changed the way we go about things during the pandemic. Some of those things have persisted. Some have gone uh, back to the way we used to do things pre-COVID. But um, I think what lingers beneath the surface is what you said was this collective grief. And uh, whilst we're all getting on with life and trying to uh, get back into life, uh, and most of us have I think, managing to do that okay, uh, not everyone has been able to. And uh, I think we're all carrying... Uh, grief Um, from that time. Many people have uh, lost someone through COVID or know someone who's died through COVID. And uh, I certainly was personally affected. And um, working in the hospital during the pandemic, particularly in the early days, was actually quite traumatic for a lot of staff. I was working in palliative care at that time and I was caring for people who were dying from COVID and seeing firsthand the impact of the isolation that was being enforced upon families, the separation uh, of family members. And uh, whilst we tried very hard to accommodate visits at end of life, it was really challenging because often family members also had COVID and we had to... Bring them in back doors of the hospital, dressed in PPE, and escort them into people patients' rooms. And uh, it was some of this was happening pre-vaccination. We had many, many staff coming down with COVID and in quarantine themselves. And we even had um, one of our doctors was even in our own hospital on a ventilator, uh, which was um, really confronting for staff. So there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of unknowns in the early days of the pandemic, and uh, things slowly improved and got better, and uh, we were able to move around much more freely. But... That, um, those early days were quite traumatic and people had their usual support systems kind of dripped away from them and grieving was very different. People were grieving over iPads and uh, I have an awful memory of um, uh, holding an iPad up for a family member so they could you know, look at their loved one who was in their final hours of life and uh, it was very emotional for everyone involved. And that communicating through technology became very common. Uh, the whole challenge of PPE and how hard it was to communicate with each other. Um, you mean like if somebody's PPE,
0: personal protective
1: yeah, yeah. masks and gowns yeah. and Yeah. And so you'd be all hot and sweaty and bothered under all these layers of stuff. And um, the eye masks I found the hardest because, you know, that fog up and you'd get all kind of hot underneath. And uh, you'd be talking to people on the phone and on video. And uh, I remember... Just jumping slightly, I remember trying to deliver an education session online to nurses, and there's a few nurses and you know head to toe PPE kind of huddled around a screen of a computer listening to me, and you know I couldn't even see their eyes because it all fogged up. I was fortunately sitting in the comfort of my office, but um, it was really hard to um, deliver education, and a lot of it had to be put on hold um, because you know just resources were so stretched. So. A whole lot of things happen that um, have stayed with people and particularly if if you were in Melbourne, where Melbourne's quite well known as the most lockdown city in the world. Uh, And, you know, all those policies were very divisive and people all have their own views on how government should have managed all of that. So I won't go into that, but uh, yeah, the um, whilst we were, doing everything we could in the health system to care for people. People were, I felt like people were being harmed as well just through that uh, isolation that was happening and that difficulty with visiting and spending hours at the bedside that was, you know, normal in most situations. When someone's dying, family will want to spend as much time as possible at the bedside and that was really restricted and limited and in some cases didn't happen. So um, a lot of this came out in anger and frustration, and we had a real spike in incidents of aggression in the hospital. Um, There were um, concierge staff at the front door being physically attacked. There were um, uh, lots of verbal abuse. Uh, There was someone that actually broke into the hospital in an effort to get to her relative.
0: Uh, all sorts of things so are happening. What's, what's going on psychologically or, you know, without, you know, we're not going to have a, a kind of long thesis on, yeah. you know, the complexities of emotions, but it's like, I guess it's the kind of complexity of when people are experiencing emotions or what's going on just for the patient. And I guess you've got the added complexity mm. of the healthcare staff as well, but mm. just, with this, you mentioned anger, you mentioned anxiety. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So all of these things um, were playing out. So um, there was a lot of fear. So um, people were afraid of being isolated and alone. So relatives uh, would come into the hospital with COVID and, you know, they didn't know when they were going to be able to see their loved ones again. So they were very um, afraid and isolated and, uh, there was um, a lot of grief and uh, a lot of frustration and anger. Uh, and uh, people, you know, had, had a lot of control taken away from them. And uh, for palliative care, we like to try and get some of that control back and allow people to... Um, make their own choices and decisions, but some of that was taken away. So there was a situation for staff where there was some, I guess, moral distress around that, where they weren't able to provide the care that they wanted. So a lot of these events and emotions have left this kind of lasting legacy with people. I don't know if legacy is the right word, but uh, how do we, like How it's do still we process with, that? Yeah, it's, yeah still,
0: it's, it's still like a thing within people's hearts and minds. Maybe
1: it's yeah. coming over, or yeah, and some you know some of us are good at kind of pushing it down and push, heading on, getting on with it. Other people are still being impacted, and uh, you know that their, their mental health is not what it used to be, and it's really difficult for them. Uh, <clears throat> so, um grief um, has been something that's. Been on my mind a lot lately, and um, I've, uh, in an effort to try and uh, increase understanding around some of this lasting grief, uh, I've been working on an educational video, and uh, I, I'm still working on that, I'm still editing that, and um, that's going to be um, available to our staff in the hospital, and I'm going to use segments of that. And some of my face-to-face teaching to try and help people understand the complexity of grief and how, how staff can support those that are um, grieving, whether it's grief from the past or anticipatory grief, you know, looking ahead into the future for someone that has a, a, di- a difficult diagnosis of a life-threatening condition, um, <clears throat> how, how might that grief play out for them, thinking ahead to their own um, mortality so can you
0: I mean you know if with your learning design you know staff training hat on what are your learning outcomes mm. for mm. for the staff in this context just mm. to kind of clarify mm.
1: so uh, I think um, first thing is recognizing when grief is present because it can be quite buried. So um helping staff uh see and hear what grief looks and sounds like when they're talking to someone. What is it? What does it look sound yeah. like and look like? Well it can sound like all sorts of things, Mark, and it's going to be different for everybody. But I guess it's also about the context of their story. And that's where, you know, the tell me more what's your story? Um where where have these emotions come from? What what are they related to? Uh, that's going to, I guess, define whether this is um, a situation where they're experiencing grief or not. So, once someone recognises um, that someone might be grieving, then you know what what can we do to support them? And is there? Are we allowing space for that? Hospitals are terrible for. Um, you know, lack of privacy and um, they're not calming environments generally. They're very noisy and chaotic. And this is why I worked in the community for a long time because um, I like to see people at home and in the comfort of their home and part of me doesn't like... What's in the home that's not in a hospital? Yeah, well, just all those familiar things. Often it's pets, um, their favourite armchair. Uh their um, friends and family can easily be around them. Uh, they can just walk to the fridge and grab something if they want it. They don't have to wait half an hour for the nurse to go rummaging through to find some little thing of apple juice that may or may not be in the fridge. So, uh, What were you going to say? Part of you? Uh, yeah, part of me... Is really challenged by the, the just the physical hospital environment. I feel like sometimes we need to just bulldoze the hospitals down and rebuild them from scratch, uh, with a whole lot of um, input from people from the people that need to use them. Not, I mean, they need to be built for health workers to work efficiently, but they really are there for the people receiving care and need health care, and um, they really need to. Um, be built with them in mind and you know modern the modern buildings we're creating now are but we work with a lot of very old kind of legacy buildings that are not fit for purpose
0: yeah it is interesting it sort of um got it has parallels with um school teaching or a university teaching where the actual spaces the lecture theater or the workshop room or the laboratory they've kind of um sure there's ones that are Two hundred years old, and then the others that are more modern—they've been considered, and they're informed by research. And um, some of the researchers I've worked with in the past—they study hospital systems as well as the physical environments, and so it does get very complex. But in terms um, of—I don't want to talk too much (laughs) because we want to hear more from you. But like, I guess, how do you use? um your your new learning design skills to kind of you know improve your approach maybe in Mm. this territory because it's i really like that different industry areas have different learning outcomes so these are particularly uh i can't think of the word sophisticated nuanced Mm. personable they're kind of like there could be more than one correct answer It's, Mm. it's kind of like it's they're placed within these contexts of, you know, healthcare systems. Some of them have been around for a long time and are not going to go away anytime soon. Have very mm. important protocols in place. So, mm. it's, so within all of that, what what are you? What are some of your approaches? Mm. You've already mentioned one of them, and I do believe I have assisted with your aims in that area. Mm. But tell us more about that. Hang on, where's my notes? Can you please, can you tell me more?
1: <laughs> Glad that one's stuck. You've um, rehearsed it multiple times now, Mark, so I think it's going to stick. Uh, actually, rehearsal is something I really love, and when I'm doing the communication training, I get people to rehearse the phrase or the skill multiple times to kind of bed it in and tweak it until... Yeah you know, it's it's really working and it's then yeah it's good cool. mm, mm. and then really kind of um reinforce and provide lots of positive praise um when they kind of nail it so learning design so yeah what i haven't mentioned um in this interview is i studied learning design this year and uh, I was in the very fortunate position of having um, some long service leave that I'd accrued. And so I enrolled in a certificate in learning design uh, and um, did that full time. And it was um, a really amazing course. And I, I, the reason I did it is because I knew there was stuff I didn't know. And I just felt like I needed to know more. I was kind of uh, thinking, how can I um, be a more effective Educator in the hospital environment uh, because it's so challenging. You've got people doing shift work, got people in PPE sometimes, you've got rooms that aren't really built for training, got people trying to learn on the run, you've got people of all different disciplines, people that have just graduated through to people that have been there 30 years.
0: Yeah, these are all your learner in the analysis phase, learner (laughs) requirements.
1: Really diverse learners and and um, there's a lot of competition for their time and there's a lot of kind of mandatory training and things that people have to tick off. So um, what did I learn through learning learning design? That now, I, didn't, kind
0: of, I, I must hmm. help the audience. I didn't teach you in that course, but I did kind of connect with you through
1: that yeah, course. Yeah. But, um, Actually, you gave one lecture that I was in. You were, came in as a... Like, I guess guest, a, speaker. A guest speaker.
0: Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, so what did you learn about learning design in your the experience in how you apply it to the, they go back to
1: the real world? Yeah.
0: And apply
1: Look, Something I've really um, learned to embrace and understand better is the diversity of learners. Uh, so there's absolutely more than one way to teach something and you have to provide material in multiple formats so it's not a one-trick pony situation you need some people are going to find the video helpful some people are going to find the face-to-face discussion helpful some people are going to want to physically do something um, and have someone maybe there that they can call on if needed Uh, so I've really started to think about how can I provide those multiple means of engagement and and different ways that people can engage with the material. And I've really um, been thinking a lot about how to step to the side a bit more. And one of the common themes in the course is the sage on the stage versus the guide on the side. And I used to think that, uh, if I could become, if I could be more animated and more funny and more um, <laughs> kind of loud, then I'll engage my learners that way. Well, so I learned that actually that, that sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that can help and it's important to be an interesting speaker or trainer or whatever. But um, if you I think really carefully about what is it you're trying to to convey what do you want your learners to get out of the session and if they didn't get anything else out of it what's the one thing you want them to walk out the door with and what are the different ways that that could be achieved and can we provide a couple of those approaches in the one session so those in a very small nutshell or a couple of the things that I got out of the course. Obviously I got heaps more out of it, but those are a couple of the things that um, I've been carrying over and I'm only just back into the workplace. Um, I've only been back a few weeks so I'm yet to sort of apply some of this new learning and a colleague and I are just developing a one-day course, training course in healthcare communication that um, we're going to be delivering in May. So we're just working on some of this and I'm thinking about how I can apply some of these concepts. Mark, you might have noticed a lot of the material I've been drawn to, it's these topics that are hard to talk about. Uh, No one likes to talk about death and dying. No one likes to talk about grief. My aim is to try and get people talking about these things Uh, more easily a bit more comfortably because they're things they're universal experiences none of us is not going to uh, die and everyone has experienced grief on some level and um, I think in the healthcare setting when I'm providing education uh, I'm trying to get people back in touch with their human side they sometimes put on their professional hat and they forget that they're just talking to other people that have had the same experiences. So I really want to um, engage people in reflecting on their own personal experiences, how they might be confronted by some of this material, and then starting to um, have conversations in a learning setting. But then, outside that, you know, with their friends and family, and it might be, um, uh, it might be talking about how they've been impacted by loss, uh, by COVID, um, by illness, or it might be them starting to think about their own mortality, and uh, you know, when the day comes, uh, if. If they were really unwell, who would they trust to think about or to make decisions on their behalf about medical care and health care? Is that something they want to write down? That's getting into the territory of advanced care planning, which is another kind of part of my professional life. But, um, yeah, it's all about, for me, it's all about conversations and keeping people engaged in these topics Because uh, I think if we can demystify and kind of normalise some of this material, uh, people are going to have a more positive experience when, when the time comes when they're confronted by some of these issues.
0: In this episode, I chatted with James Watt. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.